CCSU Stanford. I'm Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program. It's a show about housing, activism, policy, politics, and much more. To the program, two guests. Sasha Perigo. She's from San Francisco DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. And we have back on the program, Daryl Owens of East Bay for everyone. Today in the program, we're talking about regional issues, gentrification, homelessness, and much, much, much more. Let's just get into things. So welcome, Sasha. Hi. And welcome, Daryl, who's currently having a sip of some sort of liquid. I'm coming back. Welcome back. Do you you remember my title from the last show? Uh, what was your title? You called me the housing wonderkind or something? Yeah, you are. I mean, <laughs> and you said I was impossibly young when I was like 21 at the time. Well, I'm now I'm now 33, so every, you're all you're all children. Uh, how, yeah, say like, who's younger here? Um, Daryl. By by a couple months though. Right? Okay. Yeah, like a year. I was surprised that I wasn't the youngest person in this scene when I realized Daryl was younger than me. <laughs> yeah. D- David Ying uh, is actually, I think, the youngest Yimby right now. He's like 21 now. Oh, that's oh, he's wow. a Berkeley kid. Yeah. So, yeah. so two two Funderkinden. Um, I don't know if that's the pr- correct uh, conjugation, but yeah. So we are here to talk about uh, just a, a bunch of stuff. I mean, I think Sasha, I think, is a really, uh, I guess, interesting place in the in the housing scene insofar as you're, I think, a great peacemaker and in the intersection of a lot of different scenes. Because I think a lot of times people have to make up their mind, you know, do you care about, you know, urbanism and making our cities work better without cars, work better for, you know, people, more density, you know, or do you have to work for tenants and equity? And I think that's a false dichotomy. And I think in a lot of ways, you you were showing how you can be an activist for both. Um, yeah, thank you. Do you want me to talk a little bit about how I kind of got to this place? Absolutely. Yeah, talk about and, and talk about uh, yeah what, what first made you realize that this is something worth putting energy into. But yeah. before you start, how do you say your last name? Perigo. I was totally wrong. <laughs> it's okay. Everyone thinks it's like Perigo. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was Perigo. I thought, yeah, it rhymes it's with indigo. Yeah. Okay, anyways. Um, so I grew up in Marin County, and um, I kind of got involved. Well, I guess what I'm doing today is, so I, um, I'm a pretty vocal advocate for fair housing and changing zoning, um, fighting exclusionary zoning and urbanist issues in the Bay Area. Um, But I'm also very involved with San Francisco's DSA, so the Democratic Socialists of America. I'm currently our homelessness co-chair. That's new. I'm very excited. Um, But yeah, how I got to this place, I'm from Marin County, and my parents aren't from Marin. They immigrated there, emigrated, I don't know, within the country um, when I was a little kid. And my mom was very involved in like racial and class justice and education issues. And in California, land use and education issues are like completely linked. Like we talked a lot about Prop 13 at home and about the fact that these communities are kept exclusionary specifically so poor people will not go to the schools in Marin. Um, so I got interested in fair housing that way. And then I went uh, to college on the peninsula and lived in like Palo Alto Menlo Park, which is also very exclusionary. So that was my view moving into San Francisco. And I am a socialist. I've been a socialist for a couple of years. Um, but my I feel like I have this focus on fair housing because my view is broader than just San Francisco, I guess. How, how rare is it that people would be in Marin County and look around and say, Marin County needs needs to be different than this? Or 
because I feel like you get a lot of people who are very comfortable with Marin County as it is. Oh, totally. Most of the people I grew up with and went to high school with, and this is specifically Southern Marin. There's parts of like Northern Marin that are definitely not as like affluent and white. Um, but people I went to high school with, their families have majority owned their homes for multiple generations. They're multi-million dollar homes. They don't have a mortgage. There's a lot of talk about like slow growth environmentalism. Like building apartments is bad for the environment because there's carbon emissions in building. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's a majority opinion. <laughs> so homelessness homelessness director now in uh, DSASF uh, co-chair, but yeah. co-chair. Okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So uh, and. Right now, there's been, in the previous weeks, really crazy stuff going on with the Embarcadero. So why don't you just speak a little bit to that? Oh, God. Yeah, definitely. So right now, um, so the mayor, London Breed, was elected um, last year, and she set a goal of opening a 1,000 new shelter beds um, citywide during her term. And that's because San Francisco has an enormous homeless problem, but like more so than other cities. We have an enormous unsheltered homeless problem. 67% of people who are homeless in San Francisco are sleeping on the streets, um, which is just ridiculous. And so she suggested building this navigation center, which is kind of like a homeless shelter plus. It's supposed to, it has additional services, it's open 24 hours, it's supposed to put you into housing after. How many people would it be able to take care of? Um, the first proposal was 225. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so she proposed this at the Embarcadero in this area that's kind of like a wealthier community. It's next to like wealthy condo owners. And they literally started a campaign to hire this like super fancy lawyer to sue the city into not building the homeless shelter. And so that's gotten like a ton of press and like the public meetings about it have been like super vitriolic. They it's- raised like what, 10,000? Was was their goal a hundred thousand? They raised almost a hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a yeah. hundred thousand, but it was. So they they had the Kickstarter. It was Kickstarter GoFundMe. GoFundMe. Uh, GoFundMe yeah. for Safe Embarcadero, and then there is the uh, opposition, which is just let's let's just do better than these guys to help the homeless uh, safer Embarcadero, which uh, just immediately shot ahead. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty cool. And that was Coalition of the Homeless. Coalition on Homelessness. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, what a great moment to unite people of just how awful these NIMBY people who just, like, we don't have the ability to help the homeless in our backyards here. What awful, like, what an awful Seriously, thing to say. Yeah. yeah. This is the one clear cut thing where you're just either a good person or not. Or uh, So, one of, I think, one thing we definitely want to talk about is social, like, socialist. Uh, how it views gentrification and how it works in our cities. And I think especially, you know, Daryl is in the East Bay. You know, you're in SF. I'm down in Silicon Valley uh, right here at Stanford Radio right now. How how does this whole ecosystem of gentrification work? And what can we all learn from each other here? So, uh, okay, let's start from the East Bay. Uh, how, what do you feel the role of SF in gentrification is? I'm so mad you switched the topic. I wanted to talk about the homeless shelter. Oh, okay. Well, okay, okay, fine. We'll get back to it in a second. <laughs> yeah, we'll but, get back to it. But um, what was the question? How does gentrification work in the East Bay? Yeah. So, just... so okay, basically, going back to my little roots for a minute, um, gentrification in the East Bay essentially works by regional actors, usually San Francisco and San Mateo and Santa Clara County, that in the last 20 years have approved of a rapid amount of 
uh, job development, usually high-income-oriented job development, and have not built sufficient housing. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like I think between like 06 to 2016, you know, San Francisco was building like 13 jobs for every one unit of housing. Um, I think Santa Clara County, or it, it might have been San Mateo County, was a little worse at like 17 or 18 jobs for every one unit of housing. Um, but like what that does is it creates housing pressure on the East Bay to house these workers, which traditionally had been more affordable than much of the West Bay had. And now we see home prices skyrocketing and rent skyrocketing in response to a lot of this induced demand. Um, from regions that otherwise don't want to build housing. And there's a whole complicated property tax and just in general value capture reason as to why these counties are incentivizing all this commercial growth and do not want to build any housing because it doesn't make them a profit and it brings in a bunch of obnoxious voters they don't want. So they're kind of installing this regional commute system where you know SF, San Mateo, and Santa Clara County benefit from all this additional sales tax revenue, general city revenue from all these new companies. And they kind of just export the, uh, the, the, the damages or the side effects onto the East Bay, which subsequently creates gentrification demand and pressure in some of the most vulnerable communities in the Bay Area, resulting in a depletion of our diversity. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we're not working together as, 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 a, as a region. I mean, I'll say this. My backyard, <laughs> Silicon Valley, is just 100% the bad guys here. They are they are building all the jobs, none of the housing, and I feel it's pushing out to both SF and then East Bay, also directly East Bay. Yeah, SF like they're the like I, I guess the 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 attitude of saying SF is gentrifying and it is people are vulnerable and they are this and I feel the trap is the solution is resist housing, resist development, and that can be a very dangerous trap to go into because I feel it also just. It doesn't really fix it. It just pushes the problem to the East Bay. Well, the problem is not that they're resisting development, per se, but they, the politics in San Francisco seems to be obsessed with resisting residential development. Mm. But commercial mm-hmm. development gets very little, relatively little opposition. I mean, yeah. they did pass, they did try things like Prop K to ban like office towers, but that was really just about protecting views, and it wasn't really about this idea that there's a jobs housing imbalance. Um, but I mean, you know, the Central Soma plan was going through. I think that started out with you know nine jobs for every one unit of housing. Uh, thankfully, because of a lot of housing organizations, not just EMBs, but some other nonprofits in the area, they kind of negotiated it down to I think about six to one. But like. You know, you're building these Salesforce towers with all these jobs, and it like it doesn't seemingly dawn on people that when you import those people, where are they supposed to live if you can't build an apartment anywhere? And the answer is they're going to price people out of existing housing. And I mean, even framing the East Bay as a victim, it certainly is. But I mean, the the first and foremost victims of that stuff are you know the Mission and the Bayview and all the immediate areas. That's the direct victim. Yeah, There's direct yeah. and indirect right. victims. Right. So they they kind of blow their own communities out, and then it's just the East Bay is the next victim. So yeah, I mean, that's what it is. I think it's interesting to consider. I totally agree. There's been when you talk about like opposition. Is there opposition to commercial development, though? I think it's important to differentiate between... So there's a lot of homeowners who don't want more development in San Francisco, and they, for the most part... Um, have not, and like the progressive political establishment, like aggra- elected progressives, have not been very com- 
very critical of new commercial development. I do think leftists on the activists on the ground absolutely are. I mean, socialists are kind of like against corporate takeover of anything. So like we have been very critical of new commercial development. But I do think it's interesting that when we look at the political solutions, and I put that in air quotes because what solution um, that San Francisco has looked at offering, we talk about like inclusionary zoning for like residential wealthy development and there's no discussion of inclusionary zoning for commercial like maybe with commercial development we should be building affordable housing alongside that it's it's it, you look at all these different pressures and you create an environment where you make some things easy and some things very hard if you want to build residential there's all these impact fees and they you know and everyone knows it costs something i mean to ask a classic socialist marxist question who benefits and who benefits from all these corporate, you know, uh, growth jobs in the city? It helps the city's budget. It increases landowner wealth through the through the rise in, mm-hmm. in in property values throughout the area. And it also, if you're a homeowner and you want to pay less in taxes, you can tax you know these large businesses that go in here, which relieves your tax burden. And I think it's very easy to look at why people who say like, oh yeah, I'm not sure I'm a big fan of this, but it does help them materially. Totally. And, yeah, and I yeah. think, and that's not something you can overlook. And I think, as far as like socialists, a big question is, if we don't want this corporate takeover, how do we equitably fund our cities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I don't have some magical answer. Um, I think part of it is we can consider, you mentioned that like, corporate takeover, additional corporate large high-paying jobs in San Francisco does inflate the city budget. But it's interesting to consider like who's benefiting from that like inflation in the city mu- budget and where that money is actually going. Um, I mean, I know something crazy like to speak kind of like about Oakland versus San Francisco, I think like 50% of Oakland's budget goes to policing or something wild like that. I don't know. Maybe Daryl can speak to this more. But I read that recently. It was like even more than San Francisco. But like San Francisco, we've been increasing um, policing of homeless people, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of like mispriorities of where that money is going instead of to like our most needy people in San Francisco. So I think part of it is a prioritization issue. Um, I think... Yeah, I'm gonna leave it at that. I think it's more like sixty percent. <laughs> wow, I could be I could be wrong. I think it's more than half. Yeah, it it does. Say, I mean, it does say something as far as like also who takes the burden of dealing with the most vulnerable. Silicon Valley, I'll say again, are the bad guys uh, in in how they're treating land use here certainly. Uh, but then again, because it is so hostile to to people in this strip mall, car-centric place, we do get RV dwellers, which are being criminalized. Yeah. Uh, but we don't, we do see a lot of homeless here in our backyard, but yeah. not so much in the suburban areas. And I think because it, it is just, it is more, if you are looking for resources, SF is going to offer more resources than Palo Alto and probably be less directly hostile to you. And SF is now cleaning up Silicon Valley's mess and the East Bay just as much. Whereas, you know, and that's and that's looks where this money is going for for dealing with homeless services and so on. Yeah, I think it's interesting though. So when you look at the numbers of people who are homeless in San Francisco, um sixty nine percent nice of (laughs) not so nice of homeless people in San Francisco were housed in San Francisco when they became homeless. And I think it was 
Um, a greater number, or 55% was housed in San Francisco for over 10 years before they became homeless. 90% of homeless people in San Francisco are from the Bay Area. So you do have a minority of people who might be doing what you're talking about. They might have been displaced from their area elsewhere in the Bay Area, and then they are homeless in San Francisco. Mm. But the majority of people in San Francisco who are homeless were actually displaced. I think it's a question of what do you do when you're vulnerable, and I think uh, SF, it's perhaps has more room on the margin to have a kind of desperate existence. Whereas here, it's like, okay, I'm packing up, I'm going to the Central Valley, and I think that's a much more common story uh, that I think it, it, the margins are just so hostile in, in a car-centric area as this. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating wildly. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, an initiative with... Um, a group of formerly incarcerated or, you know, have some kind of felony conviction folks who are trying to do a fair housing initiative to ban the box for landlords mm. so that they can't screen people. Because a, a, a big problem with homelessness is that people who are formerly incarcerated and even people who just have felony convictions, when a landlord sees that, that's like, you know, they can't even secure housing in Oakland, a lot of them. And so I actually know people in the org who are currently homeless who who have their life back together even have the security deposit and can't secure housing because of this period in their life where they were incarcerated and we know the US has bloated sentencing times so it's kind of a it's a really awful system but one of the folks I do know for a fact admits that like yeah they live in San Francisco because the resources are better that's not I don't think representative of most people but I do think that more so it represents this inequitable way we distribute homeless resources in the first place a yeah. lot of cities just don't have the resources. If I were homeless, I would go to SF. Like, and that's not saying that most people who were displaced, you know, are not from SF. I'm sure they were. I'm just saying that, like, cities, like, why would you expect good homeless services from, like, suburbs and peninsula? And, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. So there, it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that a lot of the folks who are homeless have to sort of travel around to just get, you know, basic human resources. And I don't care about municipal boundaries because they're arbitrary and stupid. But, but they serve a lot of people. They, but in, they, yeah. they, they serve a lot of people. Um, but I think that's really... To, to sort of get back to my original point about the effects of housing and how it you know affects regionally, um, that's really a product, again, of the fact that certain cities are wealthier than others based on how much commercial development they you know produce. San Francisco has the resources to do a lot of good things, like fund their schools and uh, run good muni service, relatively, um, and all those things, because they collect a lot of that profit or through taxation from tech companies. Whereas in Oakland, I mean, if one tech company considers moving there, it's kind of a big deal, like Square or Uber. Most of most of Oakland has not had. I mean, Oakland sort of missed out. Wasn't the, there the story Uber bought this big headquarters in Oakland, and it was like they left. They didn't even touch the building, and it was sitting empty for like two years. And they sold it again, and they made like a couple hundred like million dollars. Yeah, they this. probably they probably did. But <laughs> but my point is is that like if you go to downtown Oakland, most of Oakland's like corporate uh, because because San Francisco can rely on its vast sums of you know corporate um, uh, headquarters and tech firms to tax them in any way they want. Whereas Oakland doesn't really have that power. Cause if you've ever been in downtown Oakland, you know that the biggest corporation there is like Kaiser yeah. and that's been there for decades. I mean, that's been there since my dad was a kid. So Oakland doesn't have 
that many, you know, sources of revenue gathering other than maybe property taxes, which unfortunately is hard to do. So this is why, for example, while SFUSD schools are well funded, you know, Oakland's actually closing its schools. It doesn't have the money to tax them. And, you it, know, it's 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 sort of exactly why we need more regional financing. Exactly. I mean, if everyone is off themselves, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't, because you need this, you know, tech, big money, corporate in your backyard to, to tax them. But if you do, that means displacement, and that yeah. means it really affects your most vulnerable people. Although so, in Oakland's case, they get, like, worst of both worlds. So yeah, their proximity yeah. to SF means they get all the displacement anyways, and yeah. they can't even get any revenue for it. So yeah, absolutely. Oh, I had one more point on this. Um, I think it's really like, God, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, in comparison or whatever between the different counties, because it is actually really interesting. San Francisco by no means has good homeless services. We have horrible homeless services. But still, when like the NIMBYs at the Embarcadero are talking about why we shouldn't build more shelters in San Francisco, they do cite the fact that San Francisco has comparatively mm. more homeless services to these other counties. Like They'll be like, oh, Marin and Silicon Valley aren't pulling their weight with homeless shelters. San Francisco has done so much better than these cities. So therefore, we shouldn't have any more. And I think it is like for people in San Francisco, um, it's important for us to remember that even though like it's not an excuse to not build more services in San Francisco because our services are abysmal for the amount of people that need to be served. But it is if you are homeless in Silicon Valley, if you're homeless in Marin, I know in Marin there's like 90 shelter beds in all of Southern Marin spread out across 20 miles. Like. How are you going to get there? Yeah. You know, and, and and speaking on the inadequacy of the homeless services and Marin, Sasha. Oh, sorry, blah, San Francisco. Uh, Sasha, I know that when the storms were coming, you were doing some work with that. Yeah. Um, well, this kind of touches on criminalization. Um, and so one of the things in San Francisco, people don't like seeing homeless people. Um, but rather than kind of like the public rallying around, okay, we don't like seeing homeless people. Let's get these people into homes. Let's make sure they're off the street. People are like, we don't like homeless people. We're going to call the cops on them. Um, some people genuinely have gone as far as to say in these meetings with the NIMBY embarcaderos, they should be in jail. Like that's literally some people's agenda. And so... More and more, even though this is technically against city policy, um, police harass uh, homeless people on the streets. So they'll come up and they'll um, confiscate people's stuff. They'll take away their tents. They'll take away, like, imagine everything you own is with you on the street. Um, you're sleeping on the street unless you have a tent or a sleeping bag. Can you imagine, like, trying to sleep in the wet and cold for, like, three hours a night? Like, that sounds horrible. And people, the cops will come and harass them, threaten to arrest them unless they, like, give up their stuff and cops like throw it out and this is totally against policy but they do it and more and more so like reports show that during rainy periods people like to see homeless people even less because their stuff is like wet and dirty it looks more like trash i don't know it makes you sad to see somebody who's uncomfortable it's like oh please don't make me sad yeah do something (laughs) and so they called san francisco 311 and even more so um these homeless sweeps happen in the rain so one of the things that i was doing with dsasf is we raised a bunch of money to buy a bunch of tents and pass them out to people because the cops were taking away their tents we wanted to make sure they had something to sleep with in the rain and most of them were taken away immediately after we distributed them I, and I think this kind of goes to what is perhaps the most, I think, need in reform is they're like urbanists get a bad name because there really are awful 
urbanists. Like, all we need yep. is to listen to the market. We need to liberalize zoning, and we need to do sweeps. We need to clean up the mess. We need to build housing, and eventually this will work out. And, like, it is, you can't have this idealized system of eventually fixing stuff in the long term. People are suffering now, and you need yeah. a system that deals with helping people in their own community now. And I guess, how do you how do you bridge a gap to them? How do you, how do you deal with people like that? Well, well there. I'm sorry. There was just I just had this really funny thought. Like, so it was well, it's not funny. Well, basically, there during the same period in Oakland, uh, the uh, the DPW was trying to sweep a homeless encampment um, at Lake Merritt, and. Uh, it's just so funny that they did it during the like a rainy period on a Monday, and it's I'm hilarious. Just, and I'm just laughing my butt off, remembering that they like they tried to get literal like uh, garbage trucks to come in and smash people's stuff, but the geniuses drove on the like wet the wet grass, and then the garbage trucks got stuck. Oh, that is funny. And they couldn't actually take any. And and then I think folks at like Indie Bay were just filming them the whole time while they're like, they had to get another garbage truck to tow it out. Oh my God. I mean, it was a really horrible thing where they were trying to like trash homeless people's belongings, but it was just yeah. like, you you fools. That is funny. That's what you get for trying to do a sweep on a wet day. Keystone cops. Yeah, so I mean, I guess the question is like, how do like how do we find a synthesis of saying that we do need change, we do need more total housing to have everybody, but we have to make sure that there aren't just people that we just want to sweep away because they're inconvenient for this change we see. Totally. I mean, I think one of the things your question um, touches on is like building trust and like how do we build trust? And I mean, frankly, I don't blame people for not having a lot of trust in like kind of the established urbanisty politicians. I mean, for example, um, before Scott Weiner was elected to the state Senate, he actually passed Prop Q, which like made gave police more tools to arrest people in tents on the streets. Um, so he was very well known in San Francisco for being pretty pro-police, honestly. He um, opposed Prop C, which was like our biggest funding for uh, homeless services recently. And he also was known as like the staunchly anti-tenant vote on San Francisco City Council before he was elected to state Senate. So now you're in this position where he's pushing through, um, he's trying to push through change in the state Senate that would allow us to build more housing. And you have all of these groups that remember how bad he was on policing and they remember how bad he was on tenants' rights. And they're like, we don't trust anything he puts his finger on. He doesn't have our best interests in mind. He's not listening to us. So therefore, we don't trust that this will turn out well in any way, shape, or form. And so for a while, um, when I first moved to San Francisco, I was pretty involved in San Francisco YIMBY, partially because I had been doing fair housing advocacy on the peninsula and in Marin, and I thought it seemed similar. So I joined San Francisco YIMBY, and um, I spent a while kind of trying to push the org left, I guess, although not necessarily intentionally. Like, for example, in the Prop 10 debate, I felt very strongly that everyone should have rent control. Like, we should absolutely support Prop 10. And I got a lot of pushback from the other people in SFYMB. I think SFYMB tends to be specifically more market-oriented than other YMB groups in the area. I, I mean, SF, I ignore because it's just a... Like, SFYMB doesn't speak for, I think... In the peninsula, I think yeah. Yimbies and leftists really get along. In SF, it's yeah. a nightmare. <laughs> same in Marin. In Marin, like the tenants advocates and the fair housing advocates are the same people. Like it's very well known that that is the same side. Like of course it is. Um, and in San Francisco, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't call myself a Yimby in anymore. I don't find it productive in San Francisco in any way, shape, or form. And so, kind of rather than being in these urbanist spaces and trying to like 
uh, encourage leftist values, I kind of like switched and rather like my ideology is that I am a socialist. I believe this is where we need to be moving the world towards. And so I feel like I've had a lot more luck building trust there while like showing that we have this like shared value set and then talking about these issues with like my comrades for less of, lack of a better word. <laughs> so with the comrades, this is the second, this the other side of the coin. How do you say the answer is not downzone everything? Listen to Calvin Welch. You have to downzone everything. You have to make sure nothing gets built uh, because what's important is protecting currently housed tenants and making sure nothing changes. Because that's, I think, the classic trap of what gave SF tenant advocacy perhaps a bad name with some is because they you know, didn't really have a system that worked for everybody. It certainly didn't work for the East Bay. Well, okay. Okay. <laughs> Like, I don't want to speak for you, like, so speak I'm, for yourself. I'm, I'm, so much of SF politics, as someone who's been watching it for a good almost half decade now, <laughs> and who's read up a lot about it, if you try to understand the motivations based on what people tell you, you're not going to really get it. So, like, def- definitely with Wiener, like, the mistrust, the, the, the distrust, I should say, towards him from a lot of tenant groups is because he legitimately was a lot more real estate and did not support um, as many tenant measures. I would not dispute that. And, of course, when Prop Q passed, you know, we had a lot of new uh, encampments actually pop up in Oakland because a lot of a lot of homeless folks were literally just taking BART and just going across the bay. Um, so, I'm not just, dis- you know... It's 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 what it is, but like there 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 definitely is a a partisan political tribe in SF politics, where people sort of come from their teams. You know the the there's the sort of Willie Brown team, which you know pushed a lot of the development, and there's kind of this like old money team, the Aaron Peskin types, who you know live who have a lot of money and live there for a long time, and sort of want everything to be the same. And people just sort of choose their teams based on it, and then and then and then yeah, the, mod, the, the mods and the progs. Yeah, the mods yeah. and the progs, and and so like when you understand that's a lot of the motivation behind a lot of this. When people do really baffling things like oppose like SB thirty five that streamlines fifty percent affordable housing development, and then the Mission Economic Development Agency turns right around and uses it, like like. You got to understand, it's not necessarily based on a lot of what it is. It's, it's based not on first these principles. It's based on these old fights. It's based on these old fights. Yeah, and that's and that's what it is. Like, <laughs> it's so dumb. I, that's why I ignore it because I feel like it's people who don't think about anything through. They just are part of a team and they have to figure out this is what our team believes and this is why we believe it. But, and it's the other way around. They but, don't really. Yeah. It is. It is sad though that like a lot of otherwise smart people waste their time in these like trench war politics. Because I wish, I wish, like, if there's anything I would like about the SF folks is that I wish they would evaluate things based on their merits and not based on what team they came from. Because that, that, that honestly is like, I mean, the the progs and all their allies are terrible on affordable housing. I mean, if you remember SF Home, you know, mm. Calvin Welch called it ethnic cleansing, <laughs> and every single tenant group was fighting it, and it was a completely worthless bill that didn't do nothing. Yeah, and then, and then, was, and then, but and then, to say what it was, it was a density bonus. Yeah, and that was supposed to really kind of help in the sunset and stuff. Right? And then, yeah. like, where were those groups in Forest Hill when rich people were kicking out formerly homeless housing? I, you know, to the NBA's credit, I remember them being there. All I remember was what's his face? What's that clown? Uh, There's a lot of clowns. Peter Cohen. Oh, it, 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 all, all I remember him was him there laughing about it the whole time. But like, like. 
you know, you can I, I totally admit that the the Yimbies, you know, starting out in 2015, 2016 had a lot of rhetoric that, you know, was not respectful to a lot of marginalized communities and I, I think that they've kind of grown from that. Well and they they're they came And they should have they should have backed well actually they did they did support measures like um what was the homeless one? Proposition C? Yeah. And they actually worked with the coalition on homelessness regarding that. But like unfortunately they couldn't get their electeds to follow Yeah, yeah, yeah because so much team sports is going on here that it's just it's just a hard act to follow. Yeah. Well, let me jump in here. I think it's important to, I don't know, especially in the San Francisco political scene, I don't know how much this extends to um, the East Bay or the peninsula, but there's kind of this like weird conflation of leftist activists with like progressive politicians. Yes, like, that's DSA a problem. has been like the bogeyman that it's like, oh, they love Aaron Peskin or all this stuff. Like, that could not be further from the truth. Like, I assure you, maybe the one thing urbanists and, like, socialists agree on, none of the progressive politicians are progressive in San Francisco at all, whatsoever. Like, what does progressive even mean? They're not good on housing, and, like, we don't trust them. And I think at the end of the day, um, what has helped me with building trust has honestly been uh, coming into the conversation not believing that I like should be preaching at people, but that I like have a lot to learn and that I need to listen because like the I think one of the things about the Bay Area is it's so segregated that sorry almost cussed there um, so segregated that people literally don't know what the issues are in like other communities like. Coming from Marin in the peninsula, I was like, the biggest issue is exclusionary zoning. Like, yes. that is the issue. And I was, I know that gentrification is a problem, but like, I, because I didn't grow up in a gentrifying community, I didn't grow up as a renter, I wasn't as aware of the specific tools that landlords use to push people out or the forms that that would take. So I think, frankly, having more open conversations about what the problems are in our communities um, is really helpful. And the more that I've come to, um, other socialists and I've been like, hey, this is like, I went to the Fair Housing Conference of Northern California in Marin a couple weeks ago. Super cool. They had a lot of really valuable things to say. And like we presented back on that in the DSA housing group and people were like, oh, wow, I didn't know any of this. And so I think sometimes it's like the limited perspective um, and then, like, when you project that onto the political sphere where we don't have options that are actually left in San Francisco at all whatsoever, you're choosing between the progs and the mods, and people are like, okay, I guess I choose the progs, you know? Yeah. Which is, and I think it has to go, everybody in different regions kind of picks their own activism based upon their own environment, what is their own things they need to change locally, and you don't get a lot of solidarity. I'm in SB no. DSA, Silicon Valley DSA, and I feel on housing, unfortunately, like I feel there's a lot of headbutting between what uh, SFDSA wants in housing, what we want in housing, because I'm dealing with Palo Alto NIMBYs, and you're dealing with the mission, and they're very different environments. Yeah. Dealing with mostly like corporate landlords and like a lot of Wall Street money coming into San Francisco. Um, and predominantly, you know, DSA, we're talking about like building socialist power. We're talking about really moving towards socialism. We want a socialist state. How are we going to do that? We need to like activate the working class and get them to think about their material conditions. And so the organizing tech that people have traditionally used is organizing in their workplace and organizing tenants because workers and tenants are two classes where you can definitely see workers have different interests than bosses, tenants have different interests than landlords and and homeowners as well. But that is 
less left out sometimes in the Bay Area discourse. And so I think that San Francisco, especially because we're two-thirds tenants in San Mm. Francisco, a lot of the San Francisco socialist organizing has focused on tenant issues. Um, And the issues of people who are tenants already living in San Francisco are different than, like, potential tenants who might be moving into San Francisco. Um, And there's sometimes a tension there. How are the tenants groups in your backyard in Berkeley? Oh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, actually, the Oakland one's good. Yeah, the Oakland Tenants Union is good. Um, they're actually, I mean, that that's not to say that I don't like every single member, but the organization overall is a, a good org, and I have no issue with them. Um, EB for everyone has had like summits with them, and we've had conversations, and no issue. Um, uh, but oh, man, the Berkeley Tenants Union is. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's literally run by like two people. Whatever. Well, it sounds like you could make it better. Then why don't you? Uh, why don't you be the change? You oh, want they to would see? never let me in. Why? Because you're because you're black. But I don't need to. I'm I'm not hating on them, but they're they're hell of annoying. I don't need to. Like in in Berkeley, I've already kind of not trying to toot my own horn here, but ascended. So I don't really. <laughs> I I like like people think I'm extremely powerful in Berkeley, which I'm not. Daryl's currently levitating. But but. but <laughs> But I've I've done a lot of really good effective organizing through East Bay for everyone and just through being Daryl Owens in Berkeley and it's I, we've built a powerhouse of like pro housing coalitions in Berkeley and the city council which was majority anti development in 2016 has now started shifting in our direction recently approving of a study to end single family zoning in Berkeley and approving of some big housing projects in part because they were like completely blown away by the power we amassed first of all by holding out by by keeping away NIMBYs from positions of power in the 2018 election they were stunned by that and then also through this sort of like discourse we've dominated and this mobilization we've done. And let's let's East Bay for everyone I think does a great job. They care about uh change as far as building more housing and equity and I think that they have really impressed a lot of people by keeping these both in mind in the way that the kind of you know, just it's us versus them in SF has not built bridges. I, yeah. I will I will be honest. I don't think SF Yimbies are anywhere as tribalistic as people frame them to be. But they get I, judged by their worst members. I, I think I, I <laughs> some people Yeah, are. they get judged they get judged by their neoliberal members. And, and then and, also you have people like Sasha who are part of them and then basically I mean, gets you know is let's no longer be real. I didn't quit. I got pushed out. Like, let's be real. And like there are I I don't know. I don't I, I don't want to bash any organizations because that's not productive. Like I got into this to make positive change, you know? Um, but I do think uh, at the end of the day, like I, I like SFMB's platform that's written down on paper, but when very loud members oppose some parts of that platform, there's no discussion about that. And there are some people who like strongly disagree with rent control in that organization. People who think rent control is the problem with housing in California. And there's no like reeling them in or discussion about like those values. So I think when people with those values can exist in that organization, people um, mistrust it. Yeah. So, and I think he goes to one kind of question. We have tenant organizations throughout. I'm involved with tenant organizations here. Currently, like I just left Sunnyvale, but uh, Sunnyvale Tenants Union was something I was. Uh, and where, like, there's a lot of tenants all through California, and stuff is happening at the state level. We need tenant solidarity, and yeah. I think unfortunately. More often than not, we aren't seeing eye to eye with each other. Yeah. And I kind of wonder, what could we do better? 
to have tenants realize where we have common ground and where we can work for the change the tenants want. Because it's not keeping the status quo. In many places, the status yeah. quo is killing tenants. Well, so, so personally, like the way we avoided that, at least in Oakland, was to just talk to the tenant groups. That's a great idea. <laughs> Plus, it also, it also, it also helps to, it also helps to show up to things like, yeah. you know, eviction protests and defending SRO demolitions. That's something we did. Um, you know, East Bay for Everyone led a protest against, you know, Trump's proposal for concentration camps in Concord. You know, there's lots of things that we did. We protested homeless sweeps. We opposed the RV evictions in Berkeley. I mean, it's good to, uh, I think the concern for a lot of UMB organizations in general is a concern about mission creep and that a lot of people have a specific issue they want to address in the orgs and don't necessarily see other issues as intersecting. Whereas East Bay for Everyone takes sort of an all around approach to how housing, it's not just a matter of a physical shelter, but it's how you live in your communities. I mean, that's why we oppose the, uh, you know, BART policing stuff. Yeah, It's all, it's a comprehensive package of equity that isn't just about a house. Also, like, what is the point of urbanism if there aren't like resources that are interesting and helpful to people in cities? You know, like I think some people, definitely not the majority of people, but some people really take it so far as like we should demolish these historical centers and build housing. And I'm just like, isn't the whole point of wanting to live in a city that you're close to jobs, that you're close to resources, that like all of these things? That's what makes cities great. Um, but in terms of answering your question about like how to get on the same page with um, tenants unions. I mean, I really think that it goes both ways. And I think that one thing that people who aren't as involved in tenants advocacy don't always realize, and I'm speaking like from my own experience because I did not realize this until I got closer to these organizations, is how hard it is to pass tenants' rights bills in California. <laughs> Even in San Francisco, and you have yeah. majority tenants. Talk about the peninsula. It's a non-starter. Oh, yeah. And especially in Sacramento, because like um, I, I don't believe that people who are pushing for ha- more housing are just developer shills, or that they always have the interests of developers, like that they're always in the same line. But still, like there are some powerful moneyed interests that like are somewhat interested in new development in California. Um, be that they don't always look the same as equity advocates like view of new housing in California, but still there's some there's some power there. But in terms of tenants power in Sacramento, there is no tenants power in Sacramento. It was so like my um I this is one of the anecdotes I like to say about like kind of why the modern Democratic Party is like insufficient. We have a super majority in the California um in the California legislature. So you'd think that we'd be awesome on tenants issues. There was a bill last year to like extend the amount of time that tenants had to respond to an unlawful detainer, basically like an eviction notice, by like a week. Right now it's like three days or something, and they were going to give them a week. And so already not that radical. And the California Apartment Association watered that down to say, okay, literally the only thing, you can have three days, but weekends don't weekends don't count. So now it was three business days. That's how much the bill got watered down. It only got 17 votes on the floor. That is how horribly this bill failed. And like, if that type of tenant bill cannot get anywhere in Sacramento, then like, imagine like any more reform. And so I think that one of the things that tenants orgs get frustrated with is like, they're already 
against like the power imbalance there is like frankly even so much well, I don't know. Fighting NIMBYs on the peninsula is a different story. Like, <laughs> NIMBYs on the peninsula are, like, pretty... They have a lot of power. But, like, in tenants groups, like, really have no power. Um, and I think that they get frustrated sometimes when there's not the solidarity there because it's, like, they're up against so much, and that's a full-time job that if we're not going to fight for those things alongside them, like, why would they want to listen to us? I think it's... I think if there's something I'm optimistic about, I think that it is becoming obvious that the anti-NIMBY groups, aka the YIMBY groups, they do not exist to serve, you know, developers to, to landlords. Insofar as they're important, they serve the fact that people want to live in cities, be renters, and have good lives. And like, it isn't just like tank groups are the enemy because that's so so dumb. They're obviously not. And now we are at least seeing like you know there are like Just Cause died hard last year. This year there's now a new Just Cause with a new rank gouging, and it has support from some of the major uh, yeah. YIMBY groups. And I think that with with people working together, I think we can make sure all tenants in California have the bare like the bare minimum that they are that they should have. Yeah, I think honestly, um, I don't know I'm almost on the side where I'm like de- feel like I'm defending one side versus the other. But like I think one thing that speaking for the San Francisco centric model, because I remember the way San Francisco Yimby was. San Francisco, frankly, does not take much time to listen to tenants groups in San Francisco at all. Like I remember at one point last April, I brought up the fact that I was concerned that we didn't have positive relationships with any of the tenants groups in the area. And the attitude from leadership was just like, oh, well, there's nothing that can be done. And because of that, like when I got involved in like leftist organizing, I realized how much like tenants law things I didn't know. Like the San Francisco Tenants Union, even though I don't always agree with all of their political stances like if you join they send you a 40 page handbook of all the different tenant laws and protections that you can get from your landlord that I've been using so much in negotiating with my landlord this year and like people in like the Yimby world in San Francisco don't even know about these laws and regulations and stuff because they're not having conversations with the tenants advocates to begin with and I think it might go like if you come ahead if your tenant group says I want these things I want you know stability I want protection in court I want to have all these things and also, we want downzoning. They'll say, oh, out of all this, we like the downzoning. Yeah. Let's not do the rest, but oh, we love the downzoning. Well, so yeah. tennis groups don't push downzoning. Calvin Welch they, does. They def- Calvin Welch does. They defend it. Calvin Welch pushes for it. I don't... I In mean, the seven. Oh well, well, no, no. Tennis groups, tennis groups definitely push dumb, uh, uh, stuff like the moratorium stuff. Uh, they, they push well, that. I but, think... Like, the LA Tenants Union supported Measure S... With AIDS Healthcare Foundation, when every yeah. other housing justice group was against it, which was a housing moratorium in LA. Yeah. And I'm, I believe that. Stop I the Manhattanization be, I, of LA. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if the SF tennis groups are pushing the mission moratorium as well, even though that was not nearly as destructive. But um, going back to Sacto for a minute, uh, or going back to Sacramento for a minute. Sa- yeah. Does anyone see Sacto? Well, it's a. Bur- it's it's a Berkeley thing. I okay, think. it's a Berkeley. We have a street called Sacramento, and everyone says Sacto. Really? I don't. I don't know. It, okay. It's just it's just being weird. Um, <laughs> like there there's there there definitely is a stronger coalition, I believe, of tenant and housing organizers at the state level. You know, even groups that don't agree with SB fifty, like yeah. ACE, for example, have told like California EMB that like you guys are tight and you really you know tried and you guys are cool and even now like SB 50 does not receive the same kind of opposition that like SB 827 got right off the bat it because to it listened to people and it incorporated those designs and 
you know, everyone always says, and it's kind of funny because people make these contradictory statements that like, oh, the Yimbies, specifically some tribalists in San Francisco always say, well, the, the Yimbies are only listening to the equity groups this time because they have to. And it's like... That's politics. But but like, conversely, the equity groups have no power, so then why would they listen? Whereas in reality, the truth is, is that the reason why those ideas are being incorporated is because Yimbies care. Yeah. At, at least at the state level... They cared. They don't want to displace people, and so they wanted to listen to equity groups that had real, tangible concerns. They brought them forward, and that's why we don't have, you know, some of the biggest housing and, and groups with proven records I think there's two on, things. on housing and, and and transit. Like Act LA is a, is, yeah. is a good org in that respect. It you know it worked for a lot of the transit oriented plans in LA. Um, so I, you know, it's it's worthy of respect, and you know. Representatives like Buffy Wicks are pushing things like the registry uh, for tenant rental registry. Yeah, 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 which is which is like every single time a tenant organization or, or any organization opposes housing bills is always because well we can't track or we don't know where these units are and like those are things that are good and you know Nancy Skinner is the co-author of SB fifty. She's like an OG rent control activist who like just now started getting into the like housing pro housing. She's, she's stuff. like perfect in everything. Yeah, she's 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 awesome. But like she's been doing it longer than like a lot of these people. Are alive and it, it's it's and 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 you know we have nonprofit ha- uh, housing association of northern california like co-sponsoring their the, housing association yeah yeah, yeah but like nph well. nph is the biggest conglomerate of all affordable housing developers co-sponsoring sb50 which for those who are listening is the bill to legalize housing near transit and so like the the, the sb50 coalition and a lot of the pro housing coalition in Sac- sacramento is very interesting it, yeah. it's not it's not just people who are urbanists it's also a lot of like equity groups from the suburbs and it's a lot of people who are holding off on attacking it because they recognize that there's a deficit in housing and all these yeah. issues. Um not to jump in here. I I do think it's important not to misrepresent people's attitudes towards SB50. I definitely agree that there has been less backlash against SB50 than there has been against 827 and that Wieners Camp did make an effort to listen to more people than they did last time. That is definitely true. But there are still outstanding criticisms of SB50 that people are frustrated that haven't been addressed. I don't want to take a stance on it either way, but I mean, some of those are right now. I mean, he added sensitive community carve outs, which is basically like if you live in a gentrifying community, um, you get to make your own plan for like adding more housing there instead of like having the quote unquote one size fits all plan that people are calling it, um, which isn't really one size fits all. But um, people are frustrated because he the way he carved out those communities didn't necessarily listen to local advocates and people are also frustrated that they aren't just excluded like these communities still onus is put on them to do something um and it's not that they don't want to do anything it's that like they have five years under Wiener's bill to come up with like something to that meets his requirements. And we all who've been involved anywhere in community planning know it takes a lot longer than five years to get any sort of consensus plan done mm. around urban planning. So um, in general, yes, I do think progress is being made, but I don't want to paint this unilateral picture as all tenants groups are happy with the outcome of SB50. I do think some people feel like, yeah, Wiener reached out to them, 
but Wiener's team doesn't have expertise on tenants' rights, and the only reason these things are in there is because the tenants' groups pushed for them. Um, and the coalition in Sacramento is definitely more diverse than it is in San Francisco, but there are still concerns. Yeah, and I think it banners too, like tenant solidarity. It's like, do you just be selfish? I'm a tenant in the peninsula, and selfishly, I want Palo Alto to just get you know washed over with change as much as possible. But I don't want to be insensitive to SF tenants who don't simply want you know change in as much as I like tenants around here need change. And I don't know. They don't want change. Well, I think. I mean, they, they the, are scared the of change. The idea that a nonprofit organization represents every tenant in a city is absurd. No, absolutely. And I think there is. Like a, Berkeley tenants don't talk to me, and no one knows who they are in my neighborhood. Like, and I, I think, spare me. I think the question is, everyone is not really working together, thinking together, yeah. and I think no one is really. I think the safe thing is okay. Let's not do anything because we're the most vulnerable, and I'm not sure I know what's up. And I think, I think they're tenants need change and yeah. tenants need to work together to find the best change for tenants because uh, I'll say this the kind of stuff tenants it's a fight between landed and landless there needs to be land reform and that's the hardest thing in the world to do yeah. and you're not gonna do it by keeping by avoiding change you need yeah you need it yeah totally I don't think I, I'm gonna agree with Daryl I don't think that it's an issue of people in San Francisco not wanting change they they want a lot of change tenants groups in San Francisco but the change they need in their communities is different than the change people need in Palo Alto is different than the change people need in Marin and I do think the issue is a lack of regional solidarity and even a lack of regional communication mm. point blank period like I completely agree with you that groups like Silicon Valley DSA Marin DSA which is a new branch of North Bay DSA tend to be a lot more, they, they talk about zoning. Of course they talk about zoning because these issues are front and center in their communities. And I think that they talk a lot less about corporate landlords buying up their buildings and pushing them out through rent eviction because that's not really a thing that happens because well, there aren't we, apartments we, to begin with. Well, we talk about it too because the yeah. small amount of apartments we have, yeah. it's really hostile oh, <laughs> and totally. they have no protection. So I think that we we know that uh, we have bare minimum protections across the board in yeah. most places of the peninsula and we want protections because everyone deserves it, but zoning would be kind of the million pounds of dynamite that really break open the flood walls around this area. Totally. Whereas tenant, you're like scraping for any protection and it's so hostile. Which is it. also why the city of East Palo Alto recently said some very positive comments about SB 50, though had its concerns about gentrification. Yeah. Talked a lot about how essentially they're like, yeah, this bill would <laughs> mainly make Palo Alto like do their fair share. They know who their enemies yeah, are. Yeah, they, Palo Alto. Yeah. They, know that they, they know what's up. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, getting one of the sponsors of SB50 that I find like, the most compelling is the Fair Housing Advocates of Northern California. The people that whose conference I went to last month, um, super lefty, super cool. Um, I was there with some DSA Marin people. They also support SB50. And I think, um, yeah, I think the issue is that tenants in certain issues don't act, don't always know what the issues for tenants in other areas are and we're not cooperating and we're not working together to find a regional solution that works for everyone we're pushing for our own interests in each place and sometimes those conflict and here's something too i think this is incredibly important and i think optimistic we are finding out there are we have people who don't see eye to eye a lot of times it's due to good faith disagreement and i think we can work together there's sometimes just people who disagree and they are in bad faith, and you know 
these people are never going to be a force for good. And I think one thing you did, which I think is a, a, a really brave and great stance, is saying Livable California, they can never be allies with a good group in any way because yeah. they are just, they're monsters. They are. <laughs> it makes me, oh my God, one of the, um, so I definitely, now that I'm involved in DSASF, I definitely don't. I'm sure a lot of people would be mad that I'm here talking right now when I mentioned that I was involved in DSASF because there's a lot of people who don't necessarily share my views and don't think I should be a representative of the chapter. That's definitely not the majority. I agree with a lot of people in DSASF, but a minority. Um, and I'm speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for the chapter in any way, shape, or form. And same here. Yeah, but I mean, one of the things that I uh, kind of butted heads with some people about is... Um, we endorsed a candidate, and when I say we, I wasn't in the organization when we endorsed this candidate, but we endorsed a candidate for supervisor in San Francisco who had a very good track record of advocating for um, environmental justice with a lot of marginalized communities in Bayview-Hunters Point. He really did have a lot of community trust, and there were a lot of people who really felt like he was on their side, um, and he considered himself a housing justice advocate. And um, it came out after his campaign that he'd accepted a word from Livable California. And Livable California, for people who don't know, they're just like, oh my God, they're basically run by like some of the most conservative people well, in the state. Well, this kid, you're talking about, he had a photo op, and the photo yeah. op is next to Lydia Koo, Tom yeah. Bois, the worst politics people, just crazy folks from Sonny. Yeah, yeah. The, the photograph was taken by Save Marinwood, who is the guy who holds up uh, MS-13 signs and says, we don't Super want these people here. Super racist NIMBY. Yeah. It's like, you don't want to hang out with these people. Don't. Totally. <laughs> and I think that, like, I mean, I genuinely believe he didn't know who yeah. these people were, but I just don't think that's an excuse. I don't think that's an he excuse. He was showing like, up at police stations and meeting up with everyone else uh, in Livable, California. Well, it's like, he he accepted the award and he got it in the first place because yeah. regardless of his tenant advocacies, his housing positions were similarly aligned. That's what the, that's well, the problem. That's I mean, the he, problem. Might, he might support public housing, but short of any explicit subsidy and means to actually get it done, it is essentially just vouching for the status quo. And that's well, what's so frustrating is if you are, I'm a FIMBY and season means production, let's let's change everything. Let's turn the whole system over. In the meantime, downzoning. It's like that's so comforting to the worst NIMBYs yeah. across the state. I mean, I will say, I think that um, his focus was specifically on the shipyard project in Bayview Hunters Point. So they're developing on this, like, basically radioactive land, this, like, large developer. And frankly, it's, I mean, there's a lot of issues with the project, yeah. to say the least. And so he was very vocally opposed to that project. And do I think that he would have supported a lot of development elsewhere in San Francisco? No, but specifically, he was opposed to that project, and he won the award for his opposition to that project. Yeah, and I think that again, it's this um, example of people like looking at what's happening in their neighborhood and extrapolating. It's like this development is really bad, so therefore most developments must be really bad. And I think honestly, like he did accept call-ins and stuff after, where like I'm like, hey, you're partnering with literally the people who are the number one enemies to fair housing for tenants in my hometown. And like, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna, like, I'm upset. Yeah. I'm upset about that, and I'm gonna be upset about that. So, I mean, I think that um, the same way people get frustrated when uh, Yimbies look like they're allied with the California Apartment Association. I know most people definitely don't support the California Apartment Association. I, I think they're a class enemy of tenants. Yeah. I'm very much yeah. against them. Yeah. The same 
way I feel about livable California. So, I mean, I think that we have to acknowledge that and we have to be having these discussions across regional boundaries. And I guess one question I have is what is the kind of question I'm saying, are you for big change that is actually going to hurt the powers that be that are the the bad people here. And I mean, I think there's a few questions. One is, will you actually build public housing and work for it and fight for it? One is, will you re- will you repeal Prop 13 yeah. uh, and actually work for taxing land and doing stuff which is hurting landed wealth? I don't know. I think there's a few questions that like what can separate the people who want change from people who just will happily work with some very... Uh, uh, some very regressive people. What, what, what do you think? What is what is good ways to tell people apart, Dale? Yeah. yeah it's like, what's the litmus test for telling like who is actually a good faith? Okay. Look, if you want to get things passed in Sacramento, you have to make compromises. Yeah. That's just the truth. It's politics. And, and, politics and is sausage. If you making. sit there and be a parody person all day, you don't get anything done. You make a podcast on Stanford Radio and it's great. I know, right? Like, I mean, that's what it is. Like, one of Scott Weiner has emphasized, just going back to SB fifty, that like how bipartisan a lot of SB fifty support is. You know, like you know, the California Chamber of Commerce was like joking with like the state labor organization, saying like, we never sit together and support something. But yeah. here we are for this bill. It was like it was really funny. Everyone was laughing about it. But like those are sort of the coalitions you have to build in order to get things passed. And so and so I think a lot of the tenant opposition to stuff like that, I think isn't even necessarily about the policy. But like a lot of these groups are very like local grassroots neighborhood based groups. And so like one of the success successes of urbanists is how they've really changed the narrative in Sacramento. Whereas at the local level where a lot of these, you know, uh, tenant organizations do a lot of their, you know, work and stuff, they're, they've always been focused at the local level. Yeah. So there's kind of this, like, you kind of just skipped over and went to the top of the hierarchy and then ran that, and then now it's kind of a top-down thing. And so I feel like that's where a lot of the just philosophical opposition comes from. But I think one thing is pragmatism. To make things pass in Sacramento, you have to be pragmatic. Let's say we want to have public housing happen in Sacramento. You can't just say, like, I want Red Vienna, you know, season means production. You know, you actually need to work towards it. And that means making a lot of weird, tough choices, I think. And I think the question is, what can we all see to to make these things happen? Because I feel like when we all butt heads... Like it, nothing's happening. Well, issue number one is, I'm sorry, it is zoning in the Bay Area. It's if a big you don't, part of if it. you don't make public housing legal to build, you can't have it. Like I hear affordable, advocates- that's why affordable housing developers are endorsing SB 50 because you, if 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 it's single family zoned, you can't build your multifamily housing. It, 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 it's not by right. It's discretionary. And the Vancouver, uh, Canada is like, they're in our future. They do better than us. They're building oh. a lot of public housing and they're fighting zoning all the time because zoning is stopping. It is literally stopping the public housing they're building there. But yeah. like, I'm, I'm just, you know, like if SB 50 had been passed, for example, that, that low income housing project in Forest Hill would have been by right. Yeah, it, 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 it would not. The opposition from the neighborhood wouldn't have mattered because there's nothing like actually stopping it. But so long as it's discretionary under the single family rules, then you can't get it built. And that's why that's like that. Like I like a lot of the tenant groups and, and they're really cool and all. But like I don't understand why anybody who is in the interest of tenants defends policies that explicitly ban them. Here is like CAEMB. You know, look at what some of the things they're looking at. There is a. There's a bill in Sacramento. Sacramento is... Actually, let me cut that part. Sacramento, some people can say it's gross, it's pragmatic, it's making kind of... It's doing things the wrong kind of reformist way. 
it has one bill about uh, buy right homeless shelters. That's a big deal, and it's about permitting, and it's about doing things which are currently very hard and would, I think, change a lot of things. And I think you you need a coalition in Sacramento to make stuff like that happen. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I want to talk about the litmus test, like one of the things I think is important, but I also want to address this first. I think there's kind of a diversity in strategy when it comes to people's ideas about like working in or without of the system. I think that there's some people who genuinely believe that some of the elected politicians are like so untrustworthy that rather than working with them, it's better to replace them. So I frankly think some people are banking on the fact, like in San Francisco, there's a lot of people who hate Scott Wiener. I think they don't want to work with Scott Wiener to pass what he's working on because they'd rather wait it out and replace him with someone they trust more. And um, that that's, I think, some of the difference of opinion. I think some people aren't unaware that you need to build coalitions. They just don't trust any of the people that would they'd be building coalitions with. Do you need to trust politicians? I don't trust them. I just want them to do good, do good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very policy minded in general. Um, I don't think incremental policy solutions are the best way to make change, but I think they're one way to make change. And I personally am very interested in them. I feel like we're all policy nerds and that's why we're here. So I um, I spend a lot of time reading about different bills and thinking about how to improve them. So. I mean, yeah, I don't I don't trust politicians so much, but I do think there's power in legislation. Talking about maybe things which are more sexy and which are really boring, Prop 13 is one of the most regressive, awful things in yes, California. Yes. How easy is it to get socialists excited about, about Prop 13 repeal? Honestly, um, as we're having this conversation, I'm realizing I should write like a resolution for our chapter to say that we want to repeal Prop 13, because why not? Wow. I absolutely yeah. think Prop 13 is a litmus test. If you were defending Prop 13 in any way, shape, or form, you either don't know, I mean, frankly, not to be rude, but you frankly don't know anything about <laughs> California housing, or you're operating in bad faith, and we just do not agree. Like, Prop 13 is like... One of absolutely one of the litmus tests as to whether or not people are acting in good faith with California housing policy. And people can make can people can make you know quibbles and say like we need to make sure that people who are low income homeowners are safe and healthy. Yeah. It's like absolutely, but yeah. you still need to repeal this thing. Totally, and yeah. I mean it's not like all or nothing. Like there's other strategies in other areas. I know Philadelphia has means tested property tax. So if you're on a fixed income or your income is very very low, then you don't have to pay as high of property taxes. But I can't count on two hands the number of people in Marin County whose families have I know whose families have owned their home for generations. It's upwards of five million dollars and they're paying property tax on literally when the value when prop 13 was implemented because their house has been in their family for so long (laughs) that it's like the first date yeah yeah and as far as tenants tenancy and i think material material interests i think tenants need to learn be don't don't make enemies but be skeptical of homeowners because every homeowner has a big, big reason on the order of millions of dollars why they don't want to see housing become affordable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's also, I think part of the debate here, too, is housing, homeowners in the Bay Area are quite different than homeowners elsewhere because homeowners in the Bay Area have, like, profited. And I mean, I'm an abolished private property person. I don't think that homeownership is something we should be striving for. A two-hour home is personal property. It's not private property. It's a Yeah, pers- yeah. I mean, there's, there's a debate about, like, when someone's 
person like when someone's home becomes personal versus private property like if you own like a mansion and you're one person like that's we can probably say that's like private property you don't need that to like be alive but anyway um i think that you know there's this unique situation in the bay area where because there's been this influx of capital in the bay area homeowners have benefited enormously from that and like people are you know daryl and i were talking on the car ride down it's not just corporations and Wall Street buying up things that is speculative investment. I mean, like, my parents bought their home in 1999. It's worth four times what they bought it for. And, like, that right there is speculation. And so I think that, like, for the most part, it's harder to feel sorry for homeowners in the Bay Area, whereas elsewhere in the country, like, there are some people who the majority of homeowners have mortgages, are close to foreclosure. Well, go to, go to Pittsburgh. You know, yeah. go, go to the Central Valley. Go to Tracy. You'll find a lot of people who are actually, yeah. they're, they're like, they, they picked on a big mortgage in order to stay above water. And you can't just leave these people out to dry. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So there's, I mean, for me, one of the things that when I'm talking to Prop 13 about people, to people who are like, oh, well, what about like the small homeowners who like are really, the, you know, who in this climate where there's tenants versus homeowners, why would you want to be renting? Like, it's just, it's a bad situation. Like, if you are a tenant, it's objectively bad. Like, it's hard. We're paying, we're not earning any value when we're paying into rent, and we're, like, have no stability. If you get to homeownership, supposedly there's some stability there. So, Daryl, you've been quiet for a bit. What's in your mind? I'm letting Sasha talk, because it's not my show. Yeah. I did my show. Yeah, but so. your show was great, and uh, everyone wants to hear your input because you have, you, have, you have gems of wisdom in your head all the time. The only thing I care about Prop 13 because I, I think it's a waste of time trying to pursue after it. I, I honestly, I, I, I really would rather see resources go to building more housing so that people who do benefit from these really old you know tax assessments you know, essentially just kind of weed themselves out. I think getting rid of the inheritance aspect is good, but focusing on homeowners to me is pointless since the like biggest beneficiaries of Prop 13 are corporations. You know, Chevron yeah. and Richmond still pays like 70s, you know, assessments ver- versus like, you know, a, a, a current existing business. Yeah. You, could, you could look at the amount of money going places, but I think one thing you look at, when you're a Prop 13 homeowner, how do you vote? How does this affect local politics? Yeah. And a Prop 13 homeowner is they don't care about affordable housing. Because they're locked in, and I think this is a problem everywhere. Well, is you lose your empathy. Neither, when neither, neither do neither do recent homeowners. I know tons of recent homeowners who do not have these tax benefits, who told me they were not going to vote for a tax increase, a property tax increase on an affordable housing measure because it wasn't fair that they were disproportionately paying more. Yeah, yeah. It, if you if you're a recent homeowner, you made a big bet. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, talk about splitting the working class in a Marxist sense of the word. Like, obviously, not everyone who owns a home is a capitalist. A majority, like, a minority of people who own homes are capitalists. But, like, if you are someone who is a working person who fought your ass off to, like, buy a home, your interests are now inherently at odds with tenants. And, like, there's no way to build solidarity through that. So, I mean, yeah, that I'm not saying that our. We should not spend our effort trying to like organize homeowners at all by any means. I think that we need to start from the bottom up, but like that that's an element for sure. Unpopular opinion, uh, if you are in a tenant organization, you should sell your home. I believe that. I think I mean, I feel like I would absolutely support if you're in a tenants union, only tenants should have votes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I don't know. 
I'm not someone who cares about bashing on homeowners that much. I, I don't I don't hate people, but it's a system. The system of homeownership wealth, the American dream, you got to be a homeowner, you're a sucker. It is never going to lead to good change because it makes we can people all agree that ladder. We can all agree that land should be publicly owned. I mean, regardless of- Okay, we got that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, at that point, that, that solves like half your problem right there. Yeah, but you need to repeal Prop 13 because ad valorem taxes are- Just get rid of the inheritance and then it'll die out. But you still need ad valorem taxes. What uh, whatever. Okay. <laughs> We've been talking for a while. What else do we want to make sure we talk about before we wrap up this conversation? Um- I can't remember at this moment. It was about uh, Daryl isn't at lunch, so he's you're getting lightheaded, right? Uh, that's part of it. I'm, I'm honestly thinking about the game. Uh, I was going to talk about the 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 seesaw aspects of like gentrification and how it doesn't necessarily reflect on the Bay Area as it does in like the Mission, but I don't know if you want to talk about that. I'd love to talk about that. Okay, so like I feel like a lot of the opposition to development is, and, and the association of it with gentrification is like sort of a very Mission District-centric dialogue that a neighborhood that under the Eastern Neighborhoods Plan actually had a lot of development quote unquote, you know, and saw a correlation with gentrification, it's always assumed that, that that's sort of the cause of, of, of displacement. But like if you look throughout much of the Bay Area, like I would say the vast majority of low income neighborhoods that are seeing, you know, rental hike increases are not areas that are seeing a lot of if any development. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, East Oakland, a lot of the single family homes in East Oakland have been bought up by like private equity, like and, and have had like rent spikes after the uh, subprime mortgage crisis. But in general, like home prices are skyrocketing like mad and still developers are afraid to touch most of East Oakland, you know, east south of like High Street. So, again, it, it really is a matter of like induced demand from job construction. And it's yeah. not it's not as simple as just new developments cause localized rent hikes. And, and I take a lot of complexity to the situation as well, because, for example, while I don't think that a new development in the Mission District is going to cause a rent hike, I, I, like like you don't need a new development to let you know. Know that the Mission District is a popular place for high-income people to live. It was a, it was like, a conversation was relevant decades ago. Yeah, I think right yeah, now, yeah. In, in 1991, it might have been relevant. Yeah. But like in places like West Oakland, which are actually fairly low income still, and to most people are associated as, for lack of a better term, hood. Like there's a big luxury development that is being proposed that actually has done more than most developers have in terms of communicating with the community about what they'd like to see and all these issues. And it does have a very low income uh, uh, inclusionary zoning, though whether its percents are high enough is another question. But like this is actually a development that does worry me because I, I am scared that there might be an amenities effect where if you put luxury housing in some place that visually looks as uh, 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 low income as East, as West Oakland, um, that again is like four minutes away from downtown San Francisco on BART. That you will lead to rent hikes, and I've heard people like very concerned, like you know, uh, people who might want to start moving to West Oakland because it's associated with um, higher income people now. And that's sort of how gentrification works: is that in most cases, it's not spurred by development. I mean, you know, the vast majority of San Francisco on its western half is expensive as hell, and it's not because of development because there is none. The, it is expensive because a lot of people want to live there, and housing capacity is limited which leads to people moving in who are higher income. And when those folks move in, generally development follows afterwards in response because people try to capitalize off of it. And so I, I do I do like really fundamentally feel as though um, 
when we have these conversations about gentrification, that their association with new developments, I think, is very simplistic at times. People people hate people hate big capital and development, yeah. but big capital can make a ton of money without a single bit of development. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think that the issue is capital and some of the ways that that can be expressed is sometimes new development, but that's not the only way it can be expressed, right? Like when like large tech corporations bring a huge capital influx into San Francisco, that affects everyone regardless of whether or not we're building new homes. Then Wall Street investors want to invest in apartments. And then, oh my gosh, like Veritas, the largest like corporate tent, the corporate landlord in San Francisco, got some like $600 million investment from Goldman Sachs um, a couple years ago. So that shows how much like these Wall Street investors really are banking on like local real estate. And they specifically buy up rent-controlled buildings in San Francisco because they want to renovate them and get the rents as high as possible. And then if they like kind of annoy the tenants out of the building with their renovation, then they can like jack it up to market rate because we don't have vacancy control in California. And you have the Ellis Act is always a danger. Yeah, Ellis Act totally. condo conversions are the most common form of like yeah. doing that stuff. Yeah. So I think it's not, it doesn't like start and end with private developers. I think it starts with like the tech capital, the like Wall Street investment in these places, like this is all the same problem. And just avoiding private development is not alone going to stop gentrification because of exactly what Daryl's saying. I mean, I would say one component you have to look at in gentrification, it, you know, it has a lot of aspects, but one part which is almost always part of it, it's rising land values in an area. And a lot of things can cause rising land values. Development in an area, if you talk about, you know, if you build in a place which is, you know, quote unquote hood, and then you like really, you know, build, that can, ri- that can raise land values with amenity effects. And if you're landless and land values rise, that means higher rents. And yeah. that, means, that means you are in danger. And I think we have to look at why... In general, higher land values. What can we do to stop higher land values from being a death sentence to people? Because, yeah. Yeah. It's scary. Although you don't want to have severely disinvested communities. Absolutely. And I think that's key. I think rising land values is good, but we need to make sure everyone benefits. And right now, only some people benefit. And if you're a landless renter- And so the way you benefit is with the LVT. Oh, yeah, we well, solved it. Nice. Oh, there you go. <laughs> support a land value tax? Never get a guest. Oh, it's- <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, obligated every episode to make sure everyone agrees on that. Uh, that's not true. Uh, yeah, so final thoughts. Uh, what makes you optimistic about that things are actually going in the right direction? Um, I'm optimistic with, I mean, I, I've i worked really hard to try and have a positive working relationship with people in San Francisco, whether they're in the tenants union, whether they're in DSA, whether they're in the urbanist world. I get a lot of flack for it, but I really do truly think that I'm getting somewhere. And It's thankless to be nice to people. It's very, you get rewarded for being a jackass, but if you're nice to people, people hate you. It's- oh God, side note, but people are always so frustrated on both sides that I'm friends with people on quote unquote the other side that they dislike, but then they turn around and like ask me to set up meetings for them with those people. And I'm like, you're benefiting from the same thing that you're giving me for, but whatever. Um, But yeah, I think um, I've been having more, you know, I am a socialist. I am glad I'm in a socialist organizing space. And I think being a socialist from the suburbs who thinks about fair housing and thinks about exclusionary zoning, I'm glad that I'm almost, um, that my voice is present in this space because I think sometimes I'm the only one pushing for that in San Francisco. And so I've been able to question people's beliefs and I've been able to like 
expand on them, I think. Um, and I've learned an awful lot, too, from like other housing organizers. Um, so I'm optimistic the more people are listening and the more that we're like listening with respect and like we have things, we both have things to learn from each other. What makes you optimistic, Daryl? I'm not terribly optimistic. Great. Um, I, <laughs> unfortunately, I, I think that the inability to embrace a radical change means that the housing bills that are good at the state level may, be, may get watered down and, and, and may not be as effective as they should be. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of this power rests in the hands of the federal government to restore yeah. public financing to housing. And that's why I want people like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders uh, to be elected president in 2020. There's only so much that local governments can do with the money they have. And I just I really hope that like if there's anything I've learned in the like four years I've been in this housing stuff, it's that it does help to listen to people and sort of embrace and drop your like ideological barriers to why you don't embrace a certain type of policy. If you listen to people, you actually enhance your ideological and, and, understanding. And I wish people would drop their silly political like uh, 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 backdoor motivations to opposing otherwise good policy because they don't like it, you know, or the people behind it. I understand the tenant groups don't like Scott Weiner, but I don't like Michael Weinstein. I still supported Prop 10. It was an extremely flawed ballot measure that would have possibly banned statewide rent control. Sloppily piece of crap. But <laughs> but the point is that I like rent control. I support rent control. And so I pushed it. And I also pushed more housing. I pushed more public financing. I pushed getting rid of Article 34 so that we can actually make public housing legal without a vote, which is a very real threat. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my organization had to work on a senior housing project in Fairfax, and it was held. They threatened Article 34 litigation. Um, we, it, it needs to be an all-around approach, and I know that people don't like incrementalism, but at the end of the day, um, I may not be able to live in my per perfect social housing utopia, but I am happy that I have rent control. I am happy that I live in an apartment in a neighborhood that previously used to allow them, and that form of incrementalism ensures that I can live here. And so if we all wait for the perfect solution, we are just sentencing more and more of our working class further and further out, and I, I really can't support that system at all. Yeah, kind of um, to touch on something that you said, one of the reasons that I have kind of switched to this organizing model that centers my ideology, that centers socialism, is because if we, I completely agree that so much of the power to address this issue is vested in the federal government. And we need um, leftist change in terms of the federal government. I mean, the, um, the Housing and Urban Development Department in um, the United States government used to have more funding than the Department of Defense. Can you imagine that today? And so really, if we are trying Trying to make housing a human right and guarantee it to every person and guarantee that they can live in whatever neighborhood they choose, which is a quote from Martin Luther King, actually, um, then we need to be investing at the federal level in money to provide these material needs to people. And that is not going to happen under a presidential administration that is not Elizabeth Warren's, that is not Bernie Sanders. So I think building um, I, I don't think it's a single issue thing. I think we have to um, address it in the larger system. And because of that, it's important not just to push for more housing, but to push for ideological change in our nation. Well, great. Thank you so much, Sasha and Daryl, for coming down here today. I think it's really been a lot of fun to talk. All right. Warriors down. <laughs> We have been hearing from Sasha Perigo and Daryl Owens all about regional housing issues, San Francisco, East Bay, 
and even here down in Silicon Valley. You can hear this episode, all previous episodes on the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Casey Shiro, Stanford. 